Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned after the podcast for insights on elevating the human experience. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor here at Adweek, and with me as she is each week is Co M, our department's editor and co-host on the podcast. Co, how are you doing? Well, we are recovering from the Super Bowl, but otherwise, pretty good. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I feel like 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 as soon as we were done with Super Bowl, which of course is like emotionally, mentally, spiritually draining for all of us. Like as soon as it was over, a wave of illness just like <laughs> swept across. I don't know how it's been for everybody. I have been like just laid up for days, and it, and it sounded like it's just kind of been, it's just that time of year, but it's especially tough for us. But um, you have uh, several of our beloved uh, colleagues in the room with you. Who who is with us this week? Yeah, we're all spiritually recovering from the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> We have Ian Zelaya, our experiential reporter, and Patrick Kulp, our emerging tech reporter, both in the room. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, so we're all going to be talking about everything Amazon, non-Amazon, dating on Amazon, kind of. Um, But first, I wanted to let our listeners know about our next big event, which is Challenger Brands on March 4th and 5th here in New York. And we have a special code for 20% off. It's my guest 20 all caps no spaces so we hope to see you there where we get to be in conversation with challenger brands legacy brands the disruptors um and we'll all be on stage kind of talking about all things marketing but this week we're looking ahead at retail and we have the retail outlook issue out this industry is changing so rapidly and they're having to adapt so ian you're here to Talk about um, what you reported in the issue. You penned, quote, more retailers are using experiential techniques to evolve and compete with online shopping. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So for this issue, I was sort of looking into trends in terms of how brands are sort of evolving retail with experiential Um I highlighted this survey from Carney, which uh, said that 81% of Gen Z prefers to shop in stores. And I think uh, more brands are sort of looking how they can uh, 
evolve experiential techniques to keep these people in stores. Because experiential um, is is working. It's yes. drawing in people. It's leveraging um, kind of that that brand to consumer relationship, so they they have um, clout and legacy with them. So you talked about Area 15 in Las Vegas. What is that? Yeah, so that is an upcoming, I guess you could call it an experiential mall, quote unquote. Um, But it is basically going to be this tourist destination. Um, I feel like Vegas always has new restaurants and new hotels opening. And this is some something a little bit new that they're hoping will be a success. But um, essentially, it is a joint venture from this real estate development firm called Fisher Brothers, and they worked with a creative agency called Benville Studios. Um, So it's going to have a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say random, but just a lot of different tenants. Uh, It's going to be anchored by this uh, immersive art experience company called Meow Wolf, which is a pretty popular uh, uh, company based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, And then it's going to have a VR company that is called Nomadic, and they're setting up shop there. And then Todd English is going to have a food hall. But I think the major big news that came out of it is that they're partnering with Intel to have this on-site production hub. And essentially, Intel is bringing in uh, some smaller brands to sort of test out experiential concepts on-site. And it's going to be this rotating group of uh, agencies, brands, um, and... They'll sort of test out these models and pop-ups and other forms in this, uh, I think it's like a 200,000-square-foot space. Um, So it's pretty massive. Yeah. Um, David, in the southeast, as you're in Alabama, are you seeing experiential change and the the mall 2.0 come into play? Yeah. I mean, actually, um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that you have two reasons. Like, you know, you obviously don't have to shop in person mm-hmm. all, all that often. So I feel like there are two two reasons people typically do. One is necessity, right? It's just something where you either have to or it's just really inconvenient not to go out and physically buy stuff. Uh, and I feel like a lot of times that's discount driven. You know, it's like I'll go to Kohl's to get kids clothes if I'm just not sure if it'll fit. And so it's kind of a necessity that I have to go out there. And then I'm just looking for cheap. And I don't really care if if crap's just piled all over the floor. Like the it's not about the experience. The other side of it is the is the experience. You're going because you want to. And I think where I've seen that most is in this kind of is in the entertainment space. Um but but is is I think a close relative of of retail in the sense of like movie theaters, right? Like we the, a new movie theater just opened here, and it is a one hundred percent experience theater. Like every selling point they have is just like the seats move and vibrate, and the and we bring you steaks, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know, it's just it's all super over the top, uh, you know, just pampered luxury. Because you know you could stay at home and watch a movie and blistering 4k you know with no problem so they really have to find a reason the other big thing here which is in a lot of cities is top golf are you guys familiar with this yeah Mm -hmm. yeah like those things are bonkers and it you know it's gigantic because you can see it physically you can see it from anywhere uh, because it's this huge towering set of fences around it uh, but man that thing just makes money hand over fist and they built it in one of the most uh, and I don't know maybe this is their model in other markets but they built it in uh, kind of the most 
you know, one of the more dilapidated parts of downtown. Uh, and our, our city, Birmingham, is is in this huge renaissance right now. So downtown is rapidly redeveloping. But they found one of the bigger areas where, you know, it's just kind of a blighted area. And they built this huge thing. And now everything's blowing up around it. Um, but, you know, so those are the ones I, I think of in terms of like where you're seeing experience really kind of replacing a lot of the uh, you know, if it's not a dirt cheap necessity thing, it needs to be something that's pretty exciting to go to. Right. It has to be evolving. Um, I remember, Patrick, you wrote not only about zero space, which kind of brought tech and art together, but also like even Tonal, right, which is um, a tech platform where you can kind of work out virtually. But mm-hmm. even going to that store is an experience. So tech is like a big part of this new mall conversation, new retail conversation, and mm-hmm. um, not just from the tracking standpoint, which is continually changing, but also from, you know, trying to be relevant with the next generation of consumers. Would that be like a fair assessment to you, Patrick? Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually haven't seen Tonal's store. Uh, I wrote about their initial ad campaign, but... Yeah. Yeah. What was like their strategy kind of going into like selling something you know, online and then, um, but like kind of doing a show and tell virtually. Yeah. I mean, I think their whole goal is to bring the gym experience into the home. So um, they have like AI coaches and they have uh, these electromagnetic weights. It's like Peloton, but for weightlifting, it's a pretty interesting concept. Yeah. So we're having like things available to us in the home, but then other things that kind of pull us out of the home. So going to flagship stores Mm -hmm. seems to be like now an Instagram moment. Um, Ian, you also wrote about how Tiffany's is experimenting with a lease space and really designing for the eye to keep, you know, more time in the store. Yeah, for sure. So they're trying to sort of revitalize their brand. They had this classic flagship on Fifth Ave, um, and that just closed for renovations for two years. So to, I guess, accommodate that, they opened this new one called the Flagship Next Door. Um, And they're billing it as, you know, experience-focused. There's four floors, um, and the main draw, I think, is – there's this like atrium style lobby and they plan to have rotating pop-ups. Um, they haven't really given details about that, but the first one is like when you walk in, there's a replica of the Empire State Building and the Tiffany Blue. Um, there's this sort of neon skyline backed by like that's behind that installation and there's like a park bench. So you walk in and immediately it's like, here, take a selfie, uh, take pictures. Um, so that's like the intro to that store. Um, but it still functions as the old store did. Right. So. One that one that I always think about in terms of a good contrast of how this has like changed the kind of the way we approach shopping is Eataly. Um, you know, if those mm-hmm. of you who are into food, um, big foodies and, you know, the the Flatiron store uh, is their flagship. I love it. It's maybe my favorite place to go in New York if I just have time to kill and money burning a hole in my pocket and need to go buy some, you know, uh, smoked hams or whatever. And it's uh, it's an incredible place, just an unbelievable place for foodies. But it is also a cluttered mess, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it is abject Always chaos. <laughs> and, you know, there's they've got like you have to jostle through lines of people waiting for gelato when you're trying to get over to, you know, get to the the cheese stand or whatever. And everything is just, you can tell it's a place that just kind of grew exponentially on top of itself and didn't really have room for everything. And then they opened the, uh, I don't know if it was their second or if it was just one of their other locations, but at World Trade. And it's much more airy and 
modern and experience driven of like it's a great because because I always tell people when they're like what's a great foodie destination in New York I'm like well Italy but you know what kind of what what are you looking for right it's <laughs> like if you're looking for selection then yeah and if you're just a big nerd for food <laughs> I would go there but if you're looking for something that's more of an experience maybe go to the one at World Trade and you know and and try try some of these places that are a little more consumer friendly but that's one that I always you know, pops to me as like a good contrast between the two. Yeah. I mean, you know, Time Out um, has uh, started to bring in revenue from its food halls mm-hmm. that started out in Lisbon. And now we have one here um, in Brooklyn. And, you know, I would say that I will say that the Italy in Milan is has kind of a similar vibe. But I think maybe what you're getting at, David, is, you know, the idea that you can't even be on your phone while you're in the one in Flatiron because it is crowded, right? But then you go up to the top floor restaurant and it's airy and bright and you want to take photos of all the flowers that are hanging up from the glass ceiling. Um, And and it's just kind of the food halls are coming back. The malls are coming back. Um, Everyone I thought experiential was going to be a trend, but it's really here to stay. You know, 29 rooms from Refinery Turner mm-hmm. 9 has continued to iterate. Um, and it's just something that brands have to think about. There, there's one I couldn't – I mean, I'm from uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which is not a small town. But I, I would say none of us from Huntsville ever expect it to be on the forefront of many of these kind of trends. Uh, but they're building a big development there right now anchored by a Margaritaville and a few other things. But it has a lazy river going around it. I was nice. Just like, like, um, I was like, I what? what is to go to that. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, okay. And, and honestly, when they announced it, again, as someone from Huntsville who has watched many big dreams be announced and then die, I, I was like, well, we'll see. And I think it's actually under construction now. I shouldn't jinx it. Um, but it's one where I was like, they're looking for reasons to – because there's – three or four malls uh, in my hometown. And, you know, the reasons to go are have been rapidly diminishing, you know, over time. And then they went to the open air mall concept, which is fine, but it's still just still just a mall like like the experiences aren't all that great. Uh, So, you know, it's been it's been fascinating. See, I, I have a question for each of you before we move on past this topic, too, is what where do you still shop? Uh, like, where do you still physically leave uh, to go to go shop from, and then versus of necessity versus actually wanting to go there and enjoying the process? Um, so I still regularly go to Uniqlo. Um, I mean, mainly because I like the prices, I like the style, but also their stores are pretty, uh, pretty. I guess is a good way to describe it. Um, they're clean, and it is sort of it feels experiential. I mean, I pretty much just go there to get the clothes, but. Um, it's a, I would say it's like fun to be inside that store. Yeah, it's more fun than H&M. Like H&M is not, not a blast. Yeah, I mean, I mostly just go places out of convenience. There's a shopping center right by my apartment. So there's an Old Navy there. <laughs> there's a um, Model Sporting Goods. I mean, I, that, those are the, I mostly just go to places that are along my usual commuting routes anyway. So I don't really, otherwise I just shop online. And I would say I have spent a lot of time in the Lululemons and the Athletas, and partly because they have made um, an intentional effort to to build community there, right? So mm-hmm. they host all these variety of fitness classes, um, book launches that are related to various um, teachers in their community. Um, and then fun fact, my dad runs a VR activation at the mall back home on Guam. So 
I think he was oh, on the cool. experiential trend before, oh, yeah. <laughs> before it happened. <laughs> and so you put on a headset while you're passing like, you know, Payless Shoe Source or um, uh, the BCBG um, outpost and you get to pretend you're zip lining through mm-hmm. some random place in Korea. So, yeah. Nice. Wow. Yeah, for, for me, it's like it's either going to be food or, you know, it's like that. I, I, I there's quite a few Sir Latob type chains that I think do a good job of having a mix of just it's a nice experience to go there they give you free espresso and like you you know take a cooking class there and then you get a discount on buying stuff like it's a whole thing right uh, you know if you're going over there and then the other one locally that uh, we're really lucky to have and it's become a national chain but it started here in Birmingham is second in Charles which is kind of a mega used bookstore based on like Powell's and some of these others that are you know more well known but it was started by Books a Million, uh, which I think became the second largest bookstore chain after uh, uh, what was the other one? Not Barnes and Noble, but the other one that went uh, Borders, like when Borders mm-hmm. went bankrupt. Um, and I think that vaulted Books a Million up into the second place. But it's still, you know, Books a Million is just like a big bookstore, um, and that was not a. I don't know. I don't know how that industry's doing, but that's a tough one. And so they started Second and Charles as just this massive. They bought up a bunch of closed borders locations uh, and turned them into these huge used bookstores. And there's no coffee shop in mine, which is the one big thing missing. But, you know, there's a bunch of chairs and you can sit down and play video games. And there's a big table filled with random Legos that kids can just like, that's that's like an hour and a half of entertainment for your kids. You know, just like, here's a huge table of probably disease-ridden Legos. And... Um, <laughs> But I mean, it's just a great experience. Like that's one where my kids like, don't get me wrong. The library is also great. Like we spend a lot of time at the library. Uh, But, you know, having this massive used bookstore where you can just go hang out for like two hours and there's always stuff to do. uh, That one's that one's pretty great, too. Those are mine. Speaking of books. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we have a really a fun and uh, bizarre uh, book project to talk about. But let's uh, let's take a little break. And then uh, we'll stretch our legs a bit and then we'll come back. And Patrick has quite a doozy for us. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned as Tim Grulick, Managing Director at Deloitte Digital, looks at the art and science of building customer relationships. Welcome back. And in this week's issue, the big top story is Lisa Lacey's. And she dives into the perils of selling on Amazon and the quandary of Amazon to police um, fake sellers or knockoffs or not. Also in the news with Amazon, um, not quite put out by them, uh, David, you wrote a story about Amazon dating. I saw it on Twitter. Um, basically, it the premise is um, bringing all the conveniences of a Prime subscription to the world of online dating, except it's not real. It's a satire. David, who wrote this? And why haven't they approved my application? Um, Well, so yeah. So Amazon Dating uh, was a parody project, although it looks spot on, uh, which is probably the main reason it's going to get shut down. I know their Twitter feed's already been shut down um, because, you know, I'm going to guess Amazon pretty pretty intense about their whole trademark protections. Uh, But it was a group of creatives, I think, namely Annie Akopian and... uh, and Susie Shen were the two behind it. Uh, and they they put together this site. Uh, it, and it's basically how would how would Amazon handle dating? I think I believe the website was AmazonDating.co. Uh, it looks very 
uh, Amazon-y, uh, you know, but if you click around on all the little extra links around the side, like if you click legal, it actually downloads a PDF uh, for a non-ghosting agreement where if someone goes out <laughs> on a date with you and then they ghost you, they have to pay $50. And then there's interest if they don't pay and the interest is determined by whether or not they use an iPhone or an Android device. <laughs> so it's like it goes up by 50% a month if you're on iPhone and 100% if you're on Android, <laughs> which for some reason was my my favorite part. Uh, but yeah, you could just click through to the profiles. It was a little funny. I mean, probably for quite a few people who knew some of the the creators because there were there were people I know scattered throughout this, and uh, obviously they agreed to be in it. Uh, hopefully, Co, your profile will be added soon, uh, so that we I don't can, know. I guess I, I can't compete with eighty seven year old Teddy, or I think that's him, <laughs> and get, and get him delivered by Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, but but the, uh, you know, I think it really just pointed out to me how these major tech companies have have really been, not to say they have, they've avoided dating, but when you think about all the dating platforms out there, and if, and if you guys were to name the first four or five that come to mind, right, I'm going to guess Facebook dating would not be one of them, you know, that, that there's these mega platform dating sites that you just, I don't know, they've, they've really struggled. And I think this kind of showed why. <laughs> when you put dating in the, in a big corporate uh, digital platform environment, it just feels weird. It feels extra weird. But it would be really interesting, you know, and I think a friend of mine is actually thinking about this, is to match people based on your fa- finances because what you spend your money on uh, shows your values and, and where um, you carve out, you know, your time and your resources. So – that's like something kind of more lo- like logical, but this one was fun. I, I I I was I was really surprised delightfully on Twitter. <laughs> I liked the people who had like thirty two hundred reviews. Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was like two and a half stars, <laughs> and then others would have like seven reviews. So it's just like, mm, oh, that's good self awareness on people's part. Uh, but uh, Ian, what do you feel is missing from the? the the platforms out there or if if a major player like a Google or an Amazon got into this how do you think it would disrupt the the dating platforms um to be honest i'm not sure how necessary it is because i forgot that facebook dating was even a thing yeah. but i already yeah. know people who use facebook uh, twitter instagram to go on dates i've done so myself um i don't think there needs to be sort of this official dating platform for them um cuz you know, everyone's already using Tinder and Bumble and Hinge. These are actual dating apps. So um, I feel like people can just do it themselves, honestly. And yeah. Honestly, Twitter is kind of effective. I'll say that. People meet, <laughs> you know, I, I know a marriage from Twitter DMs. and But Facebook dating, that went really downhill fast yeah. because they dog fooded that, which means like they, you know, tested it out within their employees the previous year. And then... I went on for a day and I got scared and ran away. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I am with (laughs) Facebook in general. Um, So, Patrick, has anyone done an AI integration with dating? I mean, that seems so obvious, this idea that you could just let an AI kind of match you up with someone without you having to do much of anything. Has has anyone tried that? Um, that Not that I'm aware of beyond just kind of the the AI that's integrated into all of these, like the algorithms and Tinder and... um, Bumble that uh, I think I'm sure that they have some kind of black box box system that learns from what you put in and recognizes patterns and matches you up accordingly. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, from what I've heard from the singles, the 
every match is perfect. Those algorithms have just got it nailed, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> they know what they're doing. <laughs> totally. Although, and then you read the New York Times, you know, Sunday section, and you're like, so-and-so met through Hinge. You're like, okay. It's possible. You know, it's possible. <laughs> and Hinge will tell you, you know, they the algorithm learns from what you like. So... All right. So, so before the break, uh, we were talking about bookstores, and we we're talking about my old employer, Barnes and Noble. Uh, not to imply I had any sort of um, high level role uh, over there. I was a barista behind the counter at the cafe. <laughs> but bless it, I loved it. You get fifty percent off on uh, on you know food from the cafe, and something like thirty percent off on books. It was a great gig. Uh, I I actually really loved it. But bookstores have have struggled uh, to remain relevant and, and uh, over, over, the, over the years. Uh, Barnes & Noble, I still give a lot of credit to for hanging in there and trying new things. But one thing they tried this week uh, did not go over this past week, did not go over very well. Uh, Patrick, tell us a little bit about this project that they did and, and how AI was integrated into that. Sure. So it was uh, Barnes & Noble's Fifth Avenue location in Manhattan specifically. And they chose that because uh, this idea originally uh, originated with TBWA, Chiat Day, and they wanted like the highest traffic bookstore that they could possibly find. And so they put out these uh, covers of classic books like Treasure Island, Romeo and Juliet, uh, The Wizard of Oz, and all the pro- protagonists on the cover were reimagined as like more diverse people of color. Uh, and there, in some cases, there were like multiple different options for um, the same book. And right out of the gate, people were just there was a lot of criticism online. Uh, I think that same night that it the news broke, people were saying it was kind of this superficial stunt, and they would rather see uh, creators, actual authors of color, elevated instead. And um, they pulled it the next day. But uh, the backstory to this was that TBWA was inspired by this other controversy that popped up when um, the Harry Potter, the Cursed Child. Uh, cast a black actress to play Hermione, and there was a lot of uh, uproar over that. But then J.K. Rowling tried to shut that down by saying that she had never actually specified anything about Hermione's race in any of the books. So they were uh, inspired by that, and they had this uh, their data team build this custom analysis tool that looked through all these classic titles and tried to figure out which characters were never actually um, specified as a certain race or a certain background. And they found that a surprising number of them were not. Um, and then they uh, went from there. So I think there was, there was a lot of thought put into this, but then it just ended up, um, I think they just didn't think through some of the, how people would receive this, and especially with it being tied to Black History Month, which I think was a big thing. Yeah, and I, I think the thing they did not see coming is, you know, a form of, a form of, of of kind of tacit racism that I think people don't really think about a lot is just this presumption of whiteness, right? And I, I've thought about this a lot in books, and and especially modern books are a lot better at this. But it, for a long time, if you read anything written by a white European American writer, it would never mention someone's race unless the answer was mm-hmm. not white, right? Like <laughs> the only time they would ever bother because there was a presumption of whiteness. And I, I feel like that's where, you know, the this project, I like it's one of those where on paper you can see why it sounds good. And, and, and a lot of those debates that came out of the Hermione discussion and J.K. Rowling getting involved in it. But that's one where J.K. Rowling did get involved in it. In this case, we're talking like Frankenstein, Moby Dick, you know, a lot of these uh, books that – 
people have seen many times over and the authors aren't around to weigh in, but probably they were picturing white people because a lot of these were just European writers. And so I, I think they, they came from it from an interesting place. But what, what was the term that, that, that you quoted in your story? It was literary blackface that they were. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a harsh. <laughs> yeah. That's a harsh criticism. I thought that pretty much summed it up. I mean, I thought that was a good summary of all the criticism. And then someone else, or I think it was the same Twitter user actually said, it was like an effort to find and replace race, which is like obviously a reference to like find and replace in Microsoft Word or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. they. You also had a term in your story of false diversity. Mm-hmm. And actually blackface is the first thing that came to mind when I even looked at, you know, the covers that they reimagined, you know, Dorothy as this skin tone and then this thing's gone. And I was like, yeah, but what if like Dorothy was from, you know, didn't land in Kansas and she had this other story. So again, like mm-hmm. um, there's this, there's been this push in the publishing industry of, you know, we need diverse books, we need diverse authors. And it's not, I can see where the intention right, yeah. was good. And especially coming from this, um, insight of, you know, no patterns were found um, with the, the learning tool. But um, I, I, I wonder, like, why if there were no internal hands being raised um, with how this could land. Mm-hmm. And also they responded so quickly to pull it mm-hmm. down. Yeah, it was within hours, I think. They, they, it reminded me, uh, and, I, and I think the, they probably expected backlash from the same people who you know, we're upset about Hermione, the idea of Hermione being black. And, you know, they, the this assumption that the, the people most angry about it would be white supremacists. And I thought so, too. You know, when I first heard the pitch, I was like, oh, there's going to be some angry folks about that. But, it, you know, it ended up being a much more nuanced criticism. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure they were. those. That crowd was also angry about it. But I remember when The Witcher was first being cast for Netflix and there was this minor tempest in a teapot about um, one of the casting calls had that – have any of you watched Witcher or, or am I the only nerd in this room? Uh, I've watched it. So yeah. Siri, uh, who is kind of the adoptive daughter of The Witcher, um, yes. she yeah. is end, ended up being, uh, I assume, white. Uh, I mean she's she's very – pale skinned in the in the show uh, as she is in the video game but when they were casting it they mentioned that um, it, there were some terms British terms that I wasn't familiar with for basically for people of color and uh, and man there was like some some folk got really upset like no she's white this is a Polish story and and you know from Polish folklore she should be white and I kind of waded into that on Twitter uh, because I I don't think it matters. Like in the story, she yeah. is. It's a fantasy world too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I don't get and, it. <laughs> and and you know, as someone, I, I won't spoil it because there's a lot about her backstory that they hinted at in the first season, but in the books they really go into. She has a very weird um, background, a very different background than the people around her. So it would make total sense for her to look different, to be different than the ones the people around her. But man, there were just a lot of angry white people uh, about that decision, and uh, which is a bummer because The Witcher as a series is often about uh, not to go not to get on a soapbox, but that is a book about uh, you know a main character who protects marginalized cultures, who literally stops pogroms uh, from murdering uh, ethnic minorities. It's a very positive series uh, in that regard, and so I was really bummed to see you know, it's like white supremacists saying like, "No, it needs to be pure." Just like it's like, "Come on, man!" It's a book. They don't really clarify a lot of this stuff, but at least that author is still around where he can weigh in. He's a producer on the show, you know. He he can be involved in those discussions. But uh, do you do you all feel like there was like what's the lesson learned here um, beyond maybe don't 
be so fast and loose about changing race of major characters without really thinking it through. You know, I was at the CMO Moves East Summit, which was an internal event for um, Adweek's executive mentor and mentees um, program. And, you know, some of the folks in the room, the brands, including Spotify, talked about how, you know, diversity can't be just um, a superficial play, Mm -hmm. right? Even with Black History Month, um, make a real commitment and have it. Uh, top of mind and um, also to continue to bring in the people in the room. I think with this, it's especially, you know, in the age of social media, uh, you just have to almost uh, test out um, ideas with with people with big opinions. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's just a hard time in the publishing industry. Um, and they've been getting a lot of slack in general about, not having enough um, underrepresented writers um, in stores. so And this might simplify it a little bit, but it's just another example of uh, there needs to be more people of color like in that in the room, like making that decision. It just makes me wonder, you know, how many uh, people were <laughs> essentially. yeah, and and you know, I thought it was interesting. Twitter was a a good place to watch this get debated because there were people, um, you, you know, there were there were black people, there were people, that, you know, not just white folks, uh, you know, saying this is a really interesting project. This makes some really interesting points, but obviously they were tremendously outweighed by the initial voices that were really upset about it. Who uh, I think also brought up some really good criticism. So it goes to show too that. You can't just be so tokenistic about asking like one or two people, especially in in a weird situation like bringing in one or two people for one project and asking mm-hmm. them, "What do you think of this?" Like they're a lot less likely to tell you it's offensive, <laughs> you know, than, yeah. than mm-hmm. if you are to actually bring in a more representative group and, and maybe also. And I don't know, I don't know all that that Barnes and Noble and TBWA put into this in terms of the testing of it. Uh, I do know it came from a good place. I talked to some of the people uh, that were involved with it beforehand, and I know they thought they were accomplishing something really positive Uh, but you know you have to have those larger conversations it reminds me of how barbie is you know mattel is trying to really include different shapes and colors and occupations and um and i think this is kind of parallel to if they had just taken you know regular blonde barbie and ken and just changed the skin tone Mm -hmm. um but again like it's a very sensitive topic. So it's not an easy one. It's not an easy challenge for anyone to take well, on. And it's sure. also one that it's, it's you know, you hear the phrase performative, uh, you know, a lot thrown around with performative feminism or performative uh, diversity. And and I think I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of that term. I think some some people think it means I'm just doing this for show. But, you know, I, th- I think a better definition is that it it's doing something with the assumption that if you say it, it is accomplished. Like I have now, <laughs> I've put it out there and therefore we have achieved diversity <laughs> by saying this. And this to me was one of those, right? It's like, hey, look, we have changed the ethnicity of the person on the cover. Mission accomplished. <laughs> that was one where it's just like, no, there's a lot a lot more to go. A lot more depth you got to really think about. And that's that seemed to be where a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the criticism came from. But 
Uh, definitely check out, I encourage everyone to check out uh, Patrick Culp's story about that uh, to learn more if you did not catch a lot of the backlash on that. And as we spoke about earlier, uh, Ian's uh, story, Ian Zelaya has several stories about the impact of experiential marketing on retail and how it's shaping that. Uh, and then, of course, our cover story from Lisa Lacey, who unfortunately couldn't join us this week, um, but has a really incredible story about uh, brands that kind of get kicked off Amazon and how you compete with Amazon and just a lot of the internal strategy and politics of that really great read uh definitely recommend checking out uh, all that thank you patrick and ian for joining us this week yeah, thanks for thank having you. me all right uh well that's it for this week um and don't forget you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com podcast adweek.com let us know where you like to shop uh for fun versus i mean i don't i'm assuming people go to Dwayne reed or whatever for the for those things but let me know the fun places you like to go shopping and we're always curious to hear about that our theme music is by home this week's episode was produced by co m with production assistance by nick gardner uh thank you to thanks to you both uh and edited by lane mcgibbony uh if you have not already please leave us a review on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast those reviews make us feel better and they also help new listeners discover the show for ad week i'm david griner we'll be back next week Welcome to Elevating the Human Experience from Deloitte Digital. How can companies build stronger customer relationships? Tim Grulick, Managing Director at Deloitte Digital, looks at why brands need to understand the rational needs of customers to build connections and loyalty. I was cooking a new recipe the other day with my family. I was following the recipe to a tea, and then I got to the dreaded instructions, salt and pepper to taste. I get so worked up about these instructions because the recipe has told me the measure for every other ingredient but the salt and pepper. It's because taste is personal, and how much salt and pepper each individual may want or like can be personal to them and will be different for different people. It's kind of like how people react to different experiences and interactions. Each person interacts a little bit different based upon the context or lack of context involved in the interaction. When we think about how we can leverage psychology and the findings from the Emotional Research Report to build stronger, more lasting customer relationships— I think we can all admit that there is both a science and an art to building customer relationships. Based on the research, we know that relationships between customers and brands evolve over time based upon a mix of factors, emotional responses, rational considerations, and shared values. We also know that while shared values and emotional marketing messages attract customers, it's rational thinking that initially dominates the purchase decision-making process. Finally, we can prove that consistently meeting rational needs builds trust with the basis for creating emotional connections and ultimately loyal customers. What we can't tell you is how to contextually interact with customers at specific moments in time to create emotional bonds. It's contextual information in the form of unstructured data and primary feedback that is like the salt and pepper in the recipe. Contextual data is core to creating differentiated personal experiences. It's core to meeting customers' rational needs and it's ultimately core to creating more human-like experiences. Understanding how to capture, categorize, and act on contextual data will be the next great differentiator for businesses. Want to learn more about elevating the human experience through emotion-driven engagement? Visit DeloitteDigital.com slash US slash Emotion Research for more insight. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? 
Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.